This is More Christianity, exploring the fullness of the Christian faith in the Catholic Church with Father Dwight Longenecker, former Anglican priest, now Catholic author, blogger, and speaker. And now, from the WCKI studios in upstate South Carolina, Father Dwight Longenecker. Welcome to More Christianity. In this first segment of our monthly schedule, uh, we're talking to a convert to the Catholic faith. And this week, we're talking to Dr. Richard Ballard, who was for over 20 years a Lutheran minister. Dr. Ballard will join us in the second part of the program today. But before we do, we're going to spend some time learning a little bit about Martin Luther and Lutheranism. To do that, we're going to jump back to 1483, the year that Martin Luther was born uh, in Germany. He was born, of course, into a world that was Catholic. Europe was universally Catholic. Every Christian belonged to the, to the Catholic Church and was loyal to the Pope in Rome, uh, and there was no question about that. Luther was brought up in a very troubled relationship with his father and mother. Both of them were extremely strict, and the young boy was beaten by his father, and the relationship with his father was one in which he, he just couldn't please the man. And this probably influenced Luther's development. Luther's father wanted him to be a lawyer, the young Martin felt called to the monastery. He went into the Augustinian monastery, and while he was there, he found himself increasingly troubled by his relationship to God. He held, felt that he had to try to please God. He had to work hard to please God. He had to undergo lots of physical asceticism. He had to try to beat the body into submission. One wonders how much his relationship with God mirrored his relationship, his difficult relationship with his father. Martin eventually becomes disenchanted with his own efforts and realizes he can never please God. And then he says that he, in his own biography, says that he read the Bible for the first time and he read the book of Romans where he discovered that salvation was not by works but by faith. This enlightenment for Martin Luther was an understanding that he could never actually please God by being good enough. This turned on a light bulb in his head, if you like, and he realized that it was by faith alone, he thought, that he was supposed to please God and God would uh, grant him salvation. This understanding was something which Martin Luther continued to develop in his theology and his writings. Eventually, he came to an understanding that it was by faith alone that you were actually saved. This is what sparked off the Protestant Revolution, which we often call the Protestant Reformation. By 1520, he had famously nailed the 95 Theses onto the Wittenberg door. These theses were proposals for a debate. At the time, we have to say that there were elements of the Catholic Church which were corrupt. There were church leaders who were greedy. There were church leaders who were selling indulgences. These were the remission of sins could be bought. So not only did some Catholics think you could work your way into heaven, others thought you could buy your way into heaven. Naturally, Martin Luther, fired up with zeal by this idea that salvation was by faith alone, wanted to contest this view, wanted to overcome this view of salvation that you could buy or salvation that you could work to earn, saying, no, 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 salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ and his saving work and by faith alone. Now, his desire to reform the church, his desire to reform Christianity, to correct the abuses, to correct the things that were wrong, are the things which actually took him too far in the other direction. Consequently, his views on faith alone began to affect everything else in his understanding of the faith. Before too long, the idea of salvation by faith alone began to lead people logically to say that not only is salvation by faith alone, but all of the works that you do are worthless. They're not worth anything at all. Martin Luther came to understand justification 
that is, the way we're made just or the way we're forgiven in God's eyes as being something which just covers us in God's eyes, that we're not really changed at the heart of our being, as Catholic Church teaches. Instead, we're still worthless, but God covers us with his, the righteousness of Christ. God covers us with a kind of blanket of God's goodness. Martin Luther actually used the illustration. He said, it's like you're a dung heap which has been covered with snow. It might look like it's covered with all this nice white snow, but underneath it's still a dung heap. Well, all of these teachings were rather extreme and actually go against classic Catholic theology and classic Catholic teaching. The Catholic understanding is that we might be lost and our human nature is wounded by sin, but the redemption of Jesus Christ heals the wound within us and that we can be transformed from the inside out by the power of God's grace in our lives. Therefore, justification is something which actually changes us and changes us so that we might be transformed into the image of Christ. Furthermore, we believe the whole Bible. Therefore, we go back to the book of James, which says clearly that faith without works is dead. So while we have never taught in the Catholic Church that salvation is by works, we do believe that if we're saved, if we're redeemed by Christ, then a certain way of life will follow. A certain way of life which is living by faith and acting by faith and doing our works by faith and in faith by God's grace will be the consequence. In other words, if we're saved, if we're redeemed, eventually our life will be transformed and we will naturally live in a different way. It's not like we've got to do some works to earn heaven. We've got to do some works to to be good enough to get there. But instead, when God changes us from the inside out, we begin to live in a new and a fresh way. The impact of Luther's theology has affected the entire Protestant world. As Luther's ideas spread across Europe, uh, they began to influence John Calvin, who also wrote extensive theological works, and from his work has come the Presbyterian tradition. Luther's ideas were spread over to England, where Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury, began to bring a theological transformation into England, which had already pulled away from the Catholic Church under the leadership of Henry VIII, and so Anglicanism also was affected by Lutheran's thought. All of Europe was eventually revolutionized by the thinking of this German monk, Martin Luther, who went on, therefore, his followers to found a church which we now know as the Lutheran Church. I'm Dwight Longenecker, Father Dwight Longenecker, and this is More Christianity. In a moment, we're going to be talking to Lutheran, former Lutheran pastor, Dr. Richard Ballard. He's now a deacon in the Catholic Church, and he's going to talk to us about the extent of Lutheranism in the world today and why he actually chose to leave Lutheranism to become a Catholic. Before we do that, I'd like to compare Martin Luther to another famous historical figure who lived some couple of hundred years before Martin Luther, and that is St. Francis of Assisi. The similarity between these two men is actually very interesting. Both of them, very religious young men, both of them with very difficult fathers. St. Francis's father also beat him, locked him up in a cupboard, told him to not be so foolish as to go off and try to be a wandering friar and a minstrel for God. Martin Luther's father wanting him to be a lawyer, beating him and treating him harshly. Both men, no doubt, had their understanding of God influenced by the the negativity and the, the bad relationship they had with their father. But look what happened with Martin Luther. His thought actually turned from a quest for holiness into a revolution that 
turned Europe upside down and eventually ended in war and bloodshed. He and his followers revolted against the established order. Compare that to St. Francis of Assisi. He also was persecuted by the religious establishment. He also lived in a time when much of the church was corrupt and much of the church needed to be reformed. St. Francis also was critical of many aspects of the church leadership. But what did he do? He went to Rome and he stood barefoot, waiting, supplicating the uh, Bishop of Rome, the Pope, asking him, please, to give permission to preach and to spread the gospel. St. Francis did not revolt against the church, but he renewed the church. Martin Luther, on the other hand, didn't have time to renew the church, didn't have time to wait in patience at the Pope's door, didn't have time to work patiently with the gentle work of the Holy Spirit to bring renewal and reform to the church. Instead, he fomented revolution. Instead, driven by his own unhappiness, he developed a theology of revolt and an action of revolt, the reverberations which we're still feeling in the world today. Stay tuned. We're going to be talking to Dr. Richard Ballard, a former Lutheran pastor who's now a Catholic, in just a few moments. Why not connect with Father Longenecker every day through his popular blog, Standing on My Head? Why the weird title? Because G.K. Chesterton said, a scene is most often more clearly seen when it is seen upside down. In Standing on My Head, Father Longenecker writes on current issues, blogs about the faith, and entertains with his wacky alter egos, inspiring us to stand firm in our Catholic faith, a faith which stands the world on its head. Welcome back to More Christianity. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker, and in this segment of our program, we're talking to Dr. Richard Ballard, a former Lutheran pastor who is now a Catholic deacon and works at Our Lady of the Rosary Parish in Greenville, South Carolina. Dr. Ballard, welcome to More Christianity. Thank you, Father. We were talking in the first part of the program about Martin Luther and telling his story. You were a Lutheran pastor for how many years? Almost 25 years, mostly in Pennsylvania. What is the state of Lutheranism today? Lutheranism today is a world communion of churches. The historic Lutheran countries of Scandinavia and primarily Eastern Germany remain ostensibly Lutheran today, although uh, a lot of the individuals who are members of that church are in name only, as has uh, affected much of uh, European Christianity. Uh, Lutheranism is no exception to that. In this country, there are two main branches of Lutheranism. The ELCA, Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, which is itself a merger of several other Lutheran bodies that had been formed along ethnic lines over the years. What do you mean by ethnic lines? So there were like German Lutherans and yes. Scandinavian Lutherans and so forth. Yes, the Germans, the Finns, uh, the Scandinavian, particularly the Swedes, the Danes. Those countries of origin became uh, sort of a, a kind of, uh, well, ethnic community for, okay. Lutheranisms, if you, for Lutherans, if you will. They, they centered around their own ethnic backgrounds and formed churches based upon that heritage. So when they came to the United States, they kept their cultural identity and they formed a Lutheran church to go with it. Yes, okay. essentially that's correct. Those bodies tended to cooperate on, to a greater or lesser degree, and over the years merged into various bodies, and 
The ELCA, the largest Lutheran denomination in this country today, is itself a merger of many of those ethnic communities. So ELCA, Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, is that the denomination that would most Lutheran churches that we see on the street corner belong to? Probably in this uh, region, in South Carolina particularly, most Lutheran churches are ELCA. Right, and there's another major Lutheran denomination. The other major Lutheran denomination is Germanic in origin, Mm -hmm. and it is the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. It defines itself more conservatively than the ELCA. It is self-consciously holding to what it understands to be the great tradition of the Christian faith as interpreted through Lutheranism and and, uh, the more historic doctrines and practices of Lutheranism. You say it's called the Missouri Synod. I'm assuming, therefore, that it's mostly centered in the Midwest. Is it a geographical sort of marker for this? Well, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod is a nationwide body. It has congregations, I believe, in all of the states, but its origin was in the Midwest and continues to be strongest there as well. And its uh, juridical headquarters is also located in Missouri. So, Dr. Ballard, you were a Lutheran pastor for over 20 years. Were you brought up as a Lutheran? No, my family was not very religious. Uh, the, my grandmother had a Southern Baptist background, but my father, my parents, most of my family practiced no faith at all. They only time they ever entered the church was usually for a wedding or a funeral. So how did you become religious then? Did you, have, did you get saved? Did you have a personal experience of Jesus? Or did you just have a natural interest in religion as it came along? Well, nothing quite that dramatic, but something more gradual mm-hmm. uh, through a sense of wanting to know uh, about Christianity, about faith, and searching. So this was when you were a teenager or a young man or what sort of As, age? In, in my teen years, it became uh, very deliberate mm-hmm. in, uh, in scope, and I gravitated at first towards uh, the Episcopal Church. And then that led you into Lutheranism. And that led me into Lutheranism. And Epis- you are a Southerner, although you don't sound very Southern. So you found yourself as a Lutheran in North Carolina. Yes. Now, I always think of Lutherans, as you've said, as being more of a sort of Yankee religion. Is Southern Lutheranism any different from that that you find up north? Southern Lutheranism has tended over the years to, uh, to be, for lack of a better word, more conservative than their northern counterparts. Uh, they tend to change less. They have a, a self-conscious identity of and tradition here that does vary somewhat in character and tone from the northern expressions. So there you are as a Lutheran pastor. Your wife, Ruth, also is ordained as a Lutheran pastor. You're serving together in various Lutheran parishes. You must have liked it pretty well to stay with it for 20 years. There were many things in, about uh, my experience as a Lutheran pastor that I would find positive and could speak about positively. Uh, The faith communities that we served were made up of genuine Christian people, uh, very loving and kind and warm. My pastoral experiences were all good ones. I can't say that I had any bad pastoral experiences. Were were all of your pastoral experiences good for all of your parishioners as well? One would would hope so. You you might find one or two that would uh, object to that characterization. I'm sure all of their experiences (laughs) of your ministry were, were only wonderful. Tell me some more about your experience of Lutheranism. What are the good things about Lutheranism? Well, there are many good things about Lutheranism. Like first thing that comes to mind, of course, is the uh, the great choral and musical traditions mm-hmm. of Lutheranism. Of course, Bach was a Lutheran, 
and out of that heritage, uh, the use of music and, and uh, hymnody within Lutheranism is a very strong and revered tradition. Uh, Lutherans sing well. Now, another thing I'm interested in with Martin Luther and the Lutheran movement is when you look at the history of it, uh, the Lutherans, along with a lot of the other reformers, were really interested, weren't they, in a religion of the people. There's a kind of grassroots movement within Protestantism. I think Luther's original intention in the reforming movement that he initiated was to help not only himself but others find uh, what he would call a a gracious God. Mm -hmm. And to do that, he felt that what he perceived as abuses and certain elements uh, that were prevalent in the the Catholic Church of, of that time Uh, needed to be changed so that it could become more accessible to the ordinary individual. One of the things that Luther did that had that effect, actually, was the translation of the scriptures into German. Uh, The people who looked to Luther's translation were able to comprehend it, and it had the effect of uh, solidifying the, the German language. So in the early days, and perhaps even in your ministry as well, one of the hallmarks of Lutheranism is here's a Christian people who like to study the Bible and hear good Bible sermons and sing good, solid, thumping Germanic hymns. <laughs> and there's a kind of heartiness about it all, isn't there? Was that your experience of it? Well, to a degree, yes. Uh, the congregations I served, in the last congregation I was pastor along with my wife for 15 years, that could be something that would describe many of, of our parishioners. They were certainly eager to study the scriptures, and they did love to sing. The, the liturgy, the Lutheran liturgy, was was also uh, part and parcel of that identity, and, and they sang the, the liturgy with gusto as well. That congregation was primarily Germanic in background, and, and so they, they were sort of a uh, hearty kind of... Uh, good Pennsylvania Good Dutch Pennsylvania women, yes. Dutch people. Yeah, pretzels and sauerkraut and all that. <laughs> uh, and so Well, there is all of that background of good, well, I would call it Lutheran food, food traditions that became associated with Lutheranism. Okay, we've got beer and pretzels and sauerkraut, and what about Fasnacht Day? Oh, we always celebrated Fasnacht uh, Day every year, Father. Fasnacht is Dutch for fast night, and so it is the day uh, that uh, the English would call Shrove Tuesday, Okay, the day before Ash Wednesday, and you had to eat up all of the fat in the house, and so you made Fasnachts. They were big, delicious, greasy donuts, and so you filled yourself full of those on, on Tuesday evening. Okay. Now, here you are. You and your wife are Lutheran pastors in a wonderful parish in Pennsylvania. From a worldly point of view, you know, you, you've got it made in many ways. This is a terrible way to talk about ministry, but you've got a rewarding life, a rewarding ministry. You, you've got your retirement plan set up. Everything is running along smoothly. You're serving the Lord. You have a rewarding life. And then you and Ruth walk out on it and become Catholics. So tell us a little bit about that decision. Well, it certainly didn't happen overnight. It was the culmination of years of uh, searching and prayer and study to find uh, that something more, that more Christianity, that uh, was lacking within the experience of Lutheranism that we had. Those elements that uh, we sought would be found in their fullness in the Catholic faith. For me, that was a search that began with the Church Fathers. 
mm-hmm. and reading uh, church history. What did the church look like in the sub-apostolic age? What did the church look like as it was described by the church fathers? Excuse me, when you say sub-apostolic age, what do you mean? You mean the sort of what, what century was this? Generally I'm um, speaking, the sub-apostolic age is those uh, first years immediately following the the death of the first apostles. Right, so right at the very earliest point. The earliest the point of, right. in the church, all the way up to um, the fourth century, the mm-hmm. prior to uh, the formulation of the Nicene Creed. So perhaps more accurately it would be, would be to say the anti-Nicene fathers. So you looked at that time period in the church history like a lot of us did, and in your particular situation, you didn't find any Lutherans there. I looked at what the fathers described the church as being, and it didn't look like the church that I was a part of. Right. And so I knew that there was that something more that had to be found. But at the same time, it's impossible to go back to the church of the sub-apostolic age. It doesn't exist anymore. This is the 21st century. It's not the first century. Couldn't it be argued that your Lutheranism was simply a historical outgrowth of that same church, uh, and therefore you were quite content to stay there? What, what made you actually say, no, I've got to go and become a Catholic? Elements that were described uh, not only in the Apostolic Fathers, but are found in the Sacred Scriptures, but were illuminated by the Church Fathers that I understood, as did they, were essential elements of what it meant to be a Christian. And that was lacking in in Lutheranism. those elements that were lacking in Lutheranism, not simply optional, but things that were central to what it meant to be a Christian. Mm -hmm. The first is, of course, uh, apostolic succession. Mm -hmm. The continuation in an unbroken line from the apostles of the authority in the church through the bishops of the church in union with the Holy Father. I can remember when I became a Catholic from the Anglican Church speaking to an English Catholic bishop. He said something which kind of blew me away. He said very calmly and without the least bit of arrogance or pride, he said, I'm not a successor to the apostles. I am an apostle. There's this kind of living reality to apostolic succession that you're talking about. Is is that right? Yes. That living reality of the presence of the charism of the Holy Spirit through uh, the episcopacy and the priesthood and and the diaconate in the church today, that is uh, a continuation of what was founded in the sacred orders by our Lord himself. That was missing within Lutheranism. And when talking about the sacraments and validity of the sacraments, I don't know if you as as a Lutheran pastor had the same experience I had as an Anglican priest going on this journey and realizing more and more the irresistible claims of the of the Catholic Church, and then realizing as I stood at the altar in my church one Sunday that I wasn't actually sure about what I was doing there at the altar. It's not that I was doing anything bad. I just wasn't sure anymore that it was that it was Catholic, that it was valid, that it was the fullness of the sacraments. D- did you have any similar doubts or experiences? Uh, eventually, I did toward the end of my journey before I became uh, a Catholic and entered into full communion with the Church. There, there came a precise moment that I remember standing at the altar, presiding at the Eucharists, and saying to myself, I just can't do this anymore, because what I was doing seemed almost a pretense. Uh-huh. It was not what the church did, but it was what 
Lutherans did. In imitation of the church. In imitation of the church. I hope that's not too harsh to our Lutheran brothers and sisters, (laughs) but I felt the same thing as an Anglican priest, that there was lacking a certain authenticity and what we would call validity to what I was doing. And that's not to say that the worship that was offered by by yourself and myself as as Anglicans and and Lutherans was worthless. Uh, It just meant that there was the fullness of the faith was lacking. Exactly. I'm sure that... uh that God deals with each of us uh, according to the knowledge that we have, to the light that we have been given. And uh, there is a great deal of, of all of those good Lutheran people, a number of them, um, perhaps the great majority of them, who simply are doing what they have been taught to do and are ignorant of the fuller, complete expression of the faith. You're listening to More Christianity. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker, and my guest today is former Lutheran pastor and now Catholic deacon, Dr. Richard Ballard. Dr. Ballard, let me just ask you a few of the things now. You've made this journey to the Catholic Church, you and your wife. Uh, you've been Catholics now for about six, seven years. You've been ordained as a Catholic deacon. You're serving as pastoral associate, Our Lady of the Rosary Church. What are the joys that you experience now as a Catholic? Well, I thank God, first of all, for the reality of the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. Uh, the presence of our Lord, uh, the real presence of his body, blood, soul, and divinity in the holy sacrifice of the Mass. That uh, completes what I experienced in Lutheranism to be a shadow of reality. So now to have that actual reality there is the height of of joy for for me, the, the source and summit of my life in the church. Also, in the Catholic Church, I am able to experience what was, again, spoken of or hinted at in Lutheranism, but mm-hmm. not really presence, present there, and that is the, the communion of saints. It is quite different as a Catholic to have as one's intimate friends, mm-hmm. uh, almost uh, contemporaries, if you will, the saints, as opposed to simply historic figures that you talked about and perhaps read yeah, about. That, that's right, and I, I agree totally with you that when I was an Anglican, I got more and more interested in the saints, but I I understood them really kind of like dead celebrities, hmm. uh, <laughs> kind of like you would you would read a story about Abraham Lincoln or George Washington or some other person who was who, who was maybe an influence on you and an inspiration to you. Now that I'm a Catholic, the lives of the saints and the, and the reality of the saints, well, to put it this way, we can follow Jesus Christ, and they, the saints are our companions on the journey. Would you say that's part of your experience oh, now as, as a Catholic as well? Absolutely, yes. Uh, and if so, which saints in particular do you connect with? Well, I particularly love Therese of Lisieux, and, and my wife has a special devotion for her. Mm-hmm. And, of course, there was my confirmation saint, uh, St. Richard of Chichester, not as well-known perhaps as some of the other saints, but he was a medieval bishop. Of course, now being a deacon, I look at some of the deacons who are also canonized, uh, St. Lawrence, for example, St. Stephen. I look at them as companions, as colleagues, as friends now, mm. St. Ephraim the martyr. In Lutheranism, the purpose of the saints, uh, we named churches after saints and honored them, had a liturgical calendar of saints, but the purpose was primarily serving as good example. Deacon, does it ever bother you or disturb you that so many of the deacon saints are also martyrs? It has always been our lot, Father. <laughs> Thank you very much for being with us today. This is Father Dwight Longenecker. You've been listening to More Christianity, and our guest today has been Dr. Richard Ballard. More Christianity explores the fullness of the Christian faith in the Catholic Church and comes to you from the WCKI studios in upstate South Carolina. Tune in every week for Father Dwight Longenecker's perspectives on Catholic culture, social issues, saints, converts, and the supernatural aspects of the Catholic faith. 
For more about Father Longenecker's work, his website is dwightlongenecker.com. <laughs>